Welcome to the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Josh Berger. And I'm Brian Lomax. And today, Josh and I are going to talk about some of our favorite books, especially we're about to enter the holiday season. And, you know, this is perhaps a time where you're thinking of giving some gifts. Maybe give a gift to yourself. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. And books are often a great way to you know, help enrich somebody else's life, especially if there are tennis players in your life or, again, giving something for yourself. And so Josh and I, we each put together a list of five books that we think would make great gifts, either, like I said, for you or someone uh, that you know is a tennis player. And uh, I think these books, as we go through them, you'll notice there's a, a mix of not just focusing on tennis, but focusing on some other aspects um, that go into great performance when it comes to the tennis. Um, and so we'll go, even though I don't think we've listed them, Josh, in terms of like uh, best, you know, books. So I think they're just basically five, but we'll go sort of five, four, three, two, one, and we'll, we'll end up with our, our, our number ones and then we'll, we'll see how that goes. So why don't we start with you, Josh? What um, gives the, maybe the number five book, on your list that people should uh, uh, look into this uh, this holiday season. All right. So my uh, my I guess number five or my my first first book on my list is um, definitely one of my all time favorites as it relates to the sport of tennis. But um, actually, is the book that got me interested, or part part of the reason that got me interested in the mental side of um, tennis and helped me really recognize how much of an importance. Um, the mental side of the sport plays in ultimate success. And that's Winning Ugly um, by Brad Gilbert. And this is a book that um, I've reread a number of times. My copy at this point is uh, totally dog-eared and uh, ragged at some parts. And it just really shows how tennis players can, using the strokes that they currently have, can best utilize those strokes, whether that means how to utilize your strengths to the opponent's weaknesses, whether that means being prepared for a match, there's a whole chapter on uh, making sure your bag is packed and making sure you're doing everything right. Um, even about playing certain types of players, as well as some of his experiences um, playing some of the best players in the world. He reached number four in the world, and you know I think even he would admit that he didn't have maybe the world's best strokes. But through um, a focus on the mental side of the game, through a focus on doing the little things right, um, managed to have an outstanding playing and coaching career. Um, so that's that's my first book, um, Winning Ugly by Brad Gilbert. So um, I, Brad- I, I like that one. You know, I think that's a good selection, Josh. And um, one of the things I liked about that book was the notion of the two notebooks. Yep. Right. One, which is like a training journal that you're using for an improvement. And then the second notebook is like your scouting report notebook and taking notes on everybody you play. And uh, I think that's also a valuable, you know, tip from that book. And and you're totally right about um, Gilbert. I th- like him admitting probably that his strokes weren't the greatest. I remember. I don't know if it's in this book. There's just there's somewhere I read this that his college coach gave a very brief scouting report on him and said something like, "Good forehand, decent serve, no backhand wins <laughs> matches." Yep. I think I got that right. And yeah. I mean, that's pretty much says it all. You because like what you were saying there, like even with your current strokes, whatever they are, 
if you can take some of your mental abilities and how you conceptualize tennis, um, you can win more matches. And and I remember seeing Brad also speak at Google, sorry about that, um, where he said he actually played a ton of matches before he was 10 years old. No, I, I absolutely. I think, uh, I mean, I, I think that match play from a young age, um, showed, you know, in terms of his results. And I think he's a great example of really maximizing one's talent. Yeah. I think as uh, sports psychology professionals and as coaches, we often talk about, you know, making the most of your talent. Um, we've, we've had other discussions in the past where, you know, somebody's best or somebody making the most of the talent, their talent might be them becoming number one in the world. Or for somebody else, that might mean being, you know, number 50 in their, in their town. Um, but it's, you know, really at the end of the day or at the end of your career, being able to honestly ask yourself, hey, did I make the most of everything? And I think he's an example of somebody that, that did. Um, so I think he, that, that book certainly provides a lot of insight for how to maximize your talents, how to go about, you know, doing, doing the little things right in terms of um, both on the court and off the court in terms of playing your best tennis and also in terms of, as we've talked about much on this show, uh, making life as difficult as possible for your opponents. I think a lot of players from that era would say that he probably made life as about as difficult as possible um, when, when he was on court. Yeah, for sure. All right. There's your number one or first book selection. Yeah. So um, the book I'm going to talk about first is also one I think that maybe – helped kick off my journey a little bit more toward um, trying to be mentally tough myself. And it's uh, called In Pursuit of Excellence by Terry Orlick. Terry Orlick is a Canadian sports psychologist. He has worked with many um, elite and Olympic level athletes. Um, and this book has been around for a while. I want to say the first edition was probably sometime in the early 90s, maybe mid 90s. Um, and we're up to maybe the fifth or sixth edition. So a new edition has come out even within the last couple of years. So it's constantly being updated with newer anecdotes and stories. And yeah, it is a little bit more on the sports psychology side, but it's really very readable. Um, and one of the things that uh, Orlick presents in there is what he calls the wheel of excellence. It has seven different um, components to it. That I think, and then you know, the chapters essentially go through those components. And so, uh, I'll just read off what the components are. So it starts off in the middle of the wheel with belief and commitment. Really, everything is kind of feed into one's belief, and that's about confidence, I think. And then your commitment to your sport, and then really in no particular order, talks about full focus, distraction control, um, positive images mental readiness, which we talked about with, with Steve Walker, and then constructive evaluation. Um, so if you really, if you want to get into something that's very uh, evidence-based, sports psychology perspectives, that is also not a textbook, you're not reading some, you know, sort of dry, heavy textbook, this is a great starter book. To, to, you know, from a general sports psychology perspective. I don't know, Josh, if you've read that book or came across it in your master's studies at all. 
I haven't. I haven't. Um, I think that I think that the point that you're making, though, about um, the ability to distill uh, research and um, you know research-based findings in a very readable way is extremely important. Um, so I, I think you know for for our listeners that maybe you know some may or may not have the the time or the patience to um, to, to to really go go through the research. I think that 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 would be a great option. For them to to really get um, you know to get that perspective without um, maybe with that without that same time commitment, so I, I think that's a great great recommendation. Yeah, and there are a lot of exercises in there that you can do, and, and even if you're a, a sports psychology practitioner, it's definitely worth reading. You know, I have taken some exercises from there and used those with athletes as well. So highly highly recommend that, and um, you know, he's a very credible person in the field, right? Uh, all right, so I'm going to do my second book, Josh, and then we'll go to you f- for your second one. Um, so this one, this one is very tennis specific, also by a sports psych uh, professional, and it's Alan Fox's Tennis Winning the Mental Match. And I remember reading this book, and it was almost like every chapter was like, yes, yes, that's it. I get it. Right. He's right on. And... Um, a lot of it, you know, you just even, you know, going through today, some of the different chapters in the book, but there's a lot of talk about, um, how to properly use your emotions on the court, a lot about confidence. There's a piece about choking and he's a big proponent of acceptance. So in sports psychology, we often talk about acceptance, commitment, therapy, right? Accepting your feelings and thoughts and and understanding that. And that's a big part of tennis is that if something bad happens out there, you have to accept it. It happened. You're not going to be able to change it just by thinking harder about that. You know, maybe that let cord that just dribbled over. That is upsetting. And it's, you know, understandable to be disappointed by such a thing. But we have to accept that it happened and then move on to that. And so a big part of the book is is a lot about accepting those things. Um, and then it ends up with the discussion of the, the psychology of doubles, which may be of interest to a lot of our listeners. Many people, you know, doubles obviously very popular, doesn't get as much sort of uh, media coverage, you know, at the elite level that singles gets. But the majority of people who are playing, you know, uh, at clubs or at, at a club level, lots of leagues are very doubles oriented. So um, I know you probably get asked for this type of content all the time, Josh, about you know what should doubles players be thinking about? How should they talk to each other? And we did a podcast on that. Um, so I think that that would be uh, that could be a valuable chapter for for many people. But Alan Fox, for those who don't know, like you said, he's a sports site. He's got his PhD in sports psychology. He actually was a quarterfinalist at Wimbledon in the '60s. And he was the men's tennis coach at Pepperdine for many years when they had a very successful program. One of his players that played under him was Brad Gilbert, in fact. Yes. I think for two years, right? Because I think Brad may have gone to a junior college at first. He did. He did under uh, Tom Shiving- Shivington, I think, yeah. was the coach. Short Short Hills, possibly. We'll, okay. have, to fact- we'll have to fact check that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but no, that's that's I think a great um, great suggestion. Alan Fox definitely um, is a great combination of a sports psychology practitioner and coach um, at you know at very high 
um, D1 level. And as, as you mentioned, uh, played, you know, on the professional tour with some great results as well. So um, actually what, one thing I'll add about him, I'm uh, I'm a Facebook friend of, of, his, of his and every, every time after a big match, maybe it's a grand slam match, you know, uh, in the later rounds, he'll write up a, uh, you know, a, a long detailed, um, piece about what in his view happened in that match. So he, he certainly still has his head very much in the game and, um, gives a, gives a great sports psychology perspective also, um, of the sport of tennis, um, from somebody who certainly has a ton of experience in the field. Um, well, I will jump into, uh, to my second, um, my second pick, which is also a tennis specific one. Um, this is a book we've talked a good amount about in, um, on this show in the past. It's actually, I believe the best-selling tennis book of all time. It's from the seventies. It is, um, the inner game of tennis, uh, by, by Tim Galway. Um, we had a discussion a few episodes back with Sean Brawley, um, who worked closely with uh, Tim for a number of years. Um, and really what I, um, what I really like about this book is they, uh, Tim distills, distills everything into self one and self two. Um, really where self one is your brain or your mind that tells your body what to do, where self two is really your body and this, um, infinitely genius, um, this infinitely genius way of doing things that it, we simply just have to get our mind out of the way of. So, and I, what I found this book to be particularly helpful with, with, with my own game was helping to quiet the mind. So trying to silence self one or trying to quiet self one to simply let self two, the body do what it knows how to do. Um, so th- this is a book, as I mentioned, it's almost 50 years old at this point, um, but it's really the type of book that not only tennis players, but um, athletes of other sports have certainly um, seen benefits from. Um, and it, it really is that act of simply awareness and simply noticing what's going on in each moment, um, noticing you know any sort of judgments that are taking place, noticing that if you just played a point and you hit the ball wide rather than saying, Oh, why did I go for that shot? I, you know, I'm so stupid. I never should have done that. I'm, you know, I'm being too aggressive to simply just say, okay, I missed that shot. That's in the past. Sort of similar to uh, Brian, what you were saying with um, Alan Fox's philosophy about acceptance, but just trying to see things as they are rather than judging them and trying to let our body knows what it, try to let our body do what it knows how to do. Um, another, a lot, last thing I'll note is that there's really a focus on the most important thing, um, which is really the ball. Um, and you know, how to focus on the ball and just to, to watch the ball and to, you know, try to simplify things into the most important, um, skill that is needed for any particular task. I think looking back to, that discussion we had with Sean Brawley, we talked a lot about distilling any sort of action into um, what, what is most critical for learning a new skill. Maybe it's tennis, maybe it's something else, but trying to simplify it for instead of trying to focus on all these different things, you're focusing on one key critical concept. Um, so that's my second book, The Inner Game of Tennis. Um, I can jump ahead to, uh, to my third one. And we sure. can sort of uh, do it snakes, snake yeah, style, exactly. Exactly. do uh, two at a time here. So uh, my third book is um, not a tennis related book, 
Um, certainly a sports psychology book. Um, one of my favorite books it is called, um, it is called Heads Up Baseball. It's by Ken Revisa, who unfortunately um, passed away a couple years back. I had the, uh, the great fortune of actually meeting him a couple times back when I lived out in California. He's certainly a pioneer and legend in the field of sports psychology. Um, really what I like about this book, and again, this is through a baseball perspective, is being able to break things down um, pitch by pitch, as you know, as, as they say in this book, and thinking about the routines that, that a, a batter has or a pitcher has, um, you know, going into each pitch, thinking about the self-talk that is needed um, in, in, or in terms of um, having the best mindset to perform your best with each pitch, um, regardless of what's happened in the past. Um, so that, that is, and, uh, there was actually a heads up baseball 2.0 that was, um, released more recently, but, um, that, that, that would be my book that, again, an older book. Um, my, my first three books are all at least a couple decades old. Um, but the, the knowledge and, um, and, and really the wisdom from, from these books, I would say is as important now as, as ever. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that would be my third book heads up, heads up baseball uh, Brian, any, any thoughts about either, either of those, either inner game of tennis or heads up baseball? Yeah. I, I mean, inner game of tennis, everybody knows that's a classic. Yes. And, um, I think, you know, you, you summarized it very well. I think not only are we trying to allow cell two to do what it wants, but we're also trying to get out of the way so cell two can learn. And, yep. You know, Sean talked. Sean Brawley talked to us a lot about the natural learning process, and so self one can get in the way of that. I also think that's an interesting book for coaches to be looking at in terms of, let's say, how you run lessons. Are you talking too much? Are you providing too much information, which is really going to have to make the player engage self one? Yep. Right. So I think that's a you know a, a useful thing for for coaches to think about. And I'm really glad you brought up heads up baseball. I think there are many parallels between baseball and tennis. You know, pitching. You know, a pitcher and a hitter is very similar to a server and a returner. Um, and in fact, you know, when I was working at Bryant a few years ago, um, we actually had a discussion with the baseball coach there, who's since moved on, but talking about the routines that batters have at the major league level. And there were some things that we actually pulled out of that discussion that we decided to change in how we return in tennis. And it actually helped the players essentially step up their execution rate. They made more returns based on some of the information that we got from a baseball coach. So the reason I'm glad that you brought it up is that whether it's baseball or some other sport, we shouldn't be afraid to read books from other sports because you may get ideas out of that. And I was reminded about this recently because um, I'm a huge hockey fan. I have always been a huge hockey fan and going back you know, into the 70s. And I remember back then and, and certainly into the 80s that the Soviet hockey team was, was really, really good. And the, the guy who's really the father of Soviet hockey um, was named Anatoly Tarasov. And he has this whole philosophy of leadership. And one of his points of leadership was to learn from other sports about how to train and and how to compete. So he had really interesting ways of training um, 
you know, Soviet hockey players through the 50s and 60s. He eventually had a falling out with um, the Soviet sport um, sort of central committee there, and a new coach was put in. Uh, most people would be more familiar with uh, through the 70s and 80s, Viktor Tikhonov. Um, but uh, Tarasov was very creative in how he trained players. Um, and so Heads Up Baseball is great. I think reading golf books is another thing because we can get a lot out of the post-shot and pre-shot routines that golf players use. Um, so there's that. I've talked in the past about fighting sports. Tennis is a fighting sport, so there, you know, there might be, might be parallels there. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that book up. Um, I do have some baseball books on my bookshelf. Um, I don't have Heads Up Baseball, um, but I, I probably will add that to my to my my library. All right. So what am I on? Number three, I think. Um, and I know this is a book. This is not a tennis book, but this is a book about. I would say becoming, you know, striving for success. And I know this is a book that you have read, Josh, because you actually did a webinar on it. And it's Atomic Habits by James Clear. And essentially, uh, and you can jump in here because I know you've done the research on the book. But I think essentially what Clear is doing here is helping people understand that success is actually built on systems of small daily habits and that he really puts an emphasis on building systems in your life as opposed to being hyper-focused about goals. Systems actually lead to to achievement Um, and part of understanding, you know, the systems that you want to develop is understanding who do you want to be in the future? You know, what's kind of like your future identity, your future self. And there are a lot of books that talk about that, but he does a really good job of helping people understand, making that connection of, of how to get there through developing good systems of, of, of nice little habits. Um, there's a good section in the book as well about how to design habits and and build them over time, right? So that you, um, you, know, you got into this a little bit in one of our other discussions with respect to resolutions yep. and why they fail, right? So this is sort of to help um, people instantiate good habits more effectively so that they can last. But he also talks about how to break bad habits, how to make them difficult to do, how to make, you know, um, you know, let's say, I'll, I'll say something for myself that it was a habit I had to break at one point was I like ice cream a lot, you know, and if ice cream is in the house, I'm going to eat it. Um, but if it's not in the house, I won't eat it. And so, you, you know, you have to make it invisible. Yep. Um, and so I thought that this was a, a – when we're talking about building habits because I think habits are what can make people – can make or break you. They can make you successful or they can make you not. Um, but it's about building the habits that are going to help you get to what you want. And one of the – I think the most um, sort of captivating parts of the book, Josh, was the opening where he talked about – I'm not going to give it away. But when he talked about his own sort of high school – and college baseball careers and what happened and kind of who he became through that process. And to me, that was uh, worth buying the book for that story. Yes. Yes. I think that that story and why he needed to intentionally create habits in his life, um, you know, 
which he demonstrated right from the beginning of the book is really a gripping way to demonstrate that, that power of habits. Um, just, I, I love that, that, um, summary, a couple, couple things that I would also point out is just that, that compounding effect yeah. um, of, of these, these small habits that you do on a daily basis, um, where, you know, maybe it's 1% better, um, that, that you get at something. Um, and you know, the, over time that, you know, these small little habits and make, make a, a huge impact. I mean, in sports psychology, oftentimes we talk about, um, goals and, uh, you know, what's, what's really important is being able to break those down into, um, those, those smaller process goals and really into those routines, um, and developing systems in order to accomplish those on a regular basis. And in order to, frankly, make those as easy as possible to adhere to where maybe you want to get into running and you think, okay, how can I make this as easy as possible to, to run every day? Okay. I want to get my shoes out in a way where I see them and I'm reminded of them. Maybe I want to, um, you know, put out my clothes, you know, in a place where I'll see them right, right as I wake up. So when that alarm goes off, I, I see those clothes and see those, um, you know, see those running shoes and I'm instantly reminded of it. So how can we make those new habits, um, you know, easy to, to start adhering to, um, last thing I'll add is sort of, um, talked about, you talked about bad habits compared to good habits. And one of my takeaways is, you know, why, why is it harder to break? Why is it, sorry, why is it easier to develop bad habits than good habits? And really the, the point that he was making is that um, bad habits have an immediate impact where you eat that ice cream or whatever it is, you, you eat that bag of chips and you have that immediate positive impact. It's, it tastes great. Maybe if it's ice cream, you get that sugar rush where something like starting a workout routine um, t- is going to take longer. It's more of a delayed gratification. Um, and, you know, in the immediate impact, it might be very uncomfortable. You know, you haven't worked out in a while and you start lifting weights and you're sore. So in the immediate impact, it's, it's maybe more negative compared to eating that ice cream or that donut. But um, so that, I think that that's a big reason why it can be challenging to start new habits, to start new positive habits compared to some of these negative habits that we start to fall into. Um, but no, I, I, uh, as you said, this is certainly one of my favorite books in terms of improvement, self-improvement and in terms of starting these habits that ultimately lead to these goals that we as sports psychology professionals love to talk about. Yeah. And I think, you know, the word atomic also, you said make it easy, but also, you know, let's say you're going to start that new running regime regimen. Um, don't plan to run five miles on the first day. Perhaps it's one mile or, or even shorter something so that you're not uh, discouraged. Um, you know, even if, if meditating, all right, meditate for two minutes. <laughs> That's uh, don't commit to an hour or something like that, where you'll just basically drop off. And then, then you can, as you said, build on the compound effect of that. Right. All right, good. So that's, I, I think, like you said, is a good self-improvement book and um, uh, one that people should definitely look into as they build systems to make themselves mentally tougher, better tennis players, a lot of great ideas that you can come up with to, to help with that. The next book on my list is really more of a philosophy book. Um, this is a book I read uh, several years ago. 
Um, as I was getting more interested in philosophy as a topic, um, and this is Ryan Holiday's The Obstacle is the Way, and really tapping into sort of ancient Stoic philosophy. This was a book that also several NFL teams, including um, the New England Patriots and Seattle Seahawks, uh, they all read this book. And I'd say the underlying um, message of the book is understanding the value of obstacles and embracing them as a means of improvement, as a means of achievement and, and, and learning to overcome things. Um, and he goes through different uh, concepts about you know how we look at obstacles. So perception being the first one. You know, how do you perceive an obstacle? Do you perceive it as a threat? Or do you perceive it as a challenge? Um, and then when you have an obstacle, what can you do about it? What action can you take? And it's, it's about not avoiding these things. It's about going through them. Yep. You know, right? So like if you're, say, somebody who's in track and field and you're, you're a hurdler, you don't run around the hurdle. You run over it, right? So you're, you're going through these things. And then he also talks about the will to do this. So when you put together a sort of perception, action, and will, um, it really creates a, a lot of energy. Um, and it can help people do what we in sports psychology often talk about, which is emotional regulation. So when challenges come up, it's not about freaking out or getting upset about it. It's understanding, again, back to this acceptance theme. Accept it for what it is. And, and this just shows you how much of how much of this wisdom is actually comes from ancient philosophers. That these concepts were there, you know, two thousand, you know, twenty five hundred years ago, um, and we're, you know, we're trying to, I think, repackage some of this so people can, you know, understand it a little bit better. And, and that's Ryan Holiday does a great job of that. His books are, you, you know, when you think of philosophy, you might not think of something that's so easy to read, but um, he does a great job of making this very readable and very easy to consume. Um, and there's even a part in there about focusing on the process and just doing that over and over again and understanding that, that obstacles are a part of it. So we shouldn't want to avoid obstacles. We should understand that they're necessary, uh, a necessary means actually of becoming the best that we can become. So from a tennis perspective, um, you know, let's, let's embrace that difficult match. Let's, you know, embrace in a way being down break point. Because if I'm able to, you know, take it on in that regard, I'm probably going to be more successful. I'm going to learn from that. Even if I don't uh, succeed in that moment, I'll learn from it and I'll get better and better and better. Um, so I just think it's a, you know, his other books I would also recommend, but I think this is the best one to start with. So Ego is the Enemy would be a nice follow-up to this in, in his more recent book, uh, Stillness is the Way um, or Stillness is the Key. Um, would be, be great. Absolutely. Yeah. Great, great recommendation there. Um, when, one other takeaway that I had from, from that book and from Stoic philosophy in general um, is really this, and it goes back to a sports psychology concept as well, is this concept of controlling the controllables is not, not a new concept whatsoever where, you know, as you said, 2000, 2,500 years ago, um, People like Marcus Aurelius were talking about, you know, focusing only on, you know, on that that can be controlled. 
And, you know, only that over what you can really have an impact on where it's so easy to get caught up and wrapped up in all these things that ultimately are out of our control and we can't really influence. So I think um, these ancient philosophical writings um, are a great reminder of some of these keys that, um, that I certainly, and I'm sure you do as well, talk to players about on a, you know, on a daily basis. Um, and I think, as you said, Ryan Holiday has a great way of um, repackaging some of that ancient wisdom in a, uh, in a way that's much, you know, that's very readable and very applicable to, to daily life. Um, so I, yeah, um, I can jump on to my fourth, fourth book, um, which is by Jonathan Fader. Um, and it is life as sport. Um, this book, which I, which is a little bit newer than, uh, a few of the others that I, um, that I had on my list. Um, what I really like about this book is he goes through many of the core um, mental mental tools that we as sports psychology practitioners use. Um, things like self-talk, things like routines, things, um, things like visualization um, and, and others. And what I like about it is he discusses them using examples from professional athletes that have utilized them and you know, achieved greater success through utilizing them. Um, but really explains how these can be used outside of sport as well. And being able to see life as a sport and see, um, you know, whatever you're pursuing as life in life, going about it in that same process as a great athlete would go about, um, go about that process, um, in, in their own life. So I, I find that I found that this book was a, um, a great way of, as we talked about with some of these other books, really distilling some of that research and making it very applicable to somebody maybe that's not even an athlete at all. Um, so uh, I actually found, you know, with um, certain family members that weren't um, weren't into tennis or weren't into sport as much, um, that this book really introduced them to this topic of sports psychology. Um, and I think for people that are tennis players and coaches, certainly um, it's a it's a great book for getting a, a better understanding of these concepts of these mental tools, but also how these can translate to mental skills and how they can really make an impact um, on, on the athletes that you're working with. So I think it definitely a great book um, for coaches um, and also for athletes to, to help to understand the, the impact that these uh, mental skills can make. I think that's great also for, you know, to try to take it to other contexts, you know, because, um, I've often said that, you know, life is performance, yep. you know, sport is performance and, you know, even sports psychology is being rebranded as sport and performance psychology. And so these things definitely translate. And I think for our fifth book each, we're going to have the same author, uh, Jim Lair. And uh, several years ago, Jim Lair and Tony Schwartz wrote an article for Harvard Business Review called The Making of a Corporate Athlete. And it was all about translating that. And then the, he uh, ended up creating a program at the Human Performance Institute that was geared towards corporate athletes. So they would have uh, people from companies come down essentially for a two and a half day retreat and go through, um, you know, a lot, probably a lot of things that are in the Jonathan Fader book, but definitely in the things that the book I'm going to talk about, which is um, Jim Lair's The Only Way to Win. And a lot of this is sort of challenging 
the idea that success is all about goals and winning. And it's much more about mission-driven activities, understanding who you're becoming, and developing and competing with character. And I really like that. And um, there's a line in there from um, Dan Jansen, the U.S. figure, uh, not figure, uh, speed skater, who said, if you're using sport to make yourself a better person, you're already a success. Which made me think about, you know, one of our first episodes, Josh, with Brian Barker, which a lot of that was about being the best person you could be. And sometimes I think that gets poo-pooed a little bit in sports, that it's all about winning. And this this book really talks about how it's not. And that um, having a mission, but also being sort of engaging with the ethical side of your character, meaning um, respecting others, having patience with others, fairness, justice. Sport is a great place, actually, to practice those skills. Um and, you know, at the end of our career, we don't want to just be looked at as someone who, you know, fought hard and won a lot of matches. That doesn't say a lot about who you were as a person. But if you could do that along with um, he was someone who respected or she was someone who respected everybody, um, it was fair and patient, um, those types of things, you know, basically in terms of how you treat people, that um, um, is, is really, really important. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, sort of the, you know, translating that into different contexts. So this book isn't necessarily a sports book. I think it was really uh, directed a, a lot at business leaders, although they're the, just like the Jonathan Fader book, probably a ton or there are a ton of sports examples yep. used throughout the book. So people can put it into whatever context that they want. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, I think, I think you, you make a great point about, about the, the importance of using sport as a vehicle to learn some of these life skills. Um, I think particularly junior athletes, um, that's one thing that I think needs to be emphasized, um, during that development process and really with, with all athletes, frankly, um, that we're not just playing just to win. Um, cause at the end of the day, you know, you want to be remembered for more than just winning tennis matches. You want to be remembered as someone that was fair on the court, that had good sportsmanship. You want to learn from this experience of developing as a tennis player or as an athlete, um, the importance of hard work, of dedication, of sacrifice at times, of teamwork when, whenever tennis is in an individual, uh, was, is in a team setting rather than an individual setting. So there really is a ton to be learned from our sporting experiences if, if viewed in the right context. So, um, yeah, I, I think Jim Lear and, uh, again, my book is my fifth book is also by him. Um, he d- has certainly done a lot of work with tennis players as, as we know, as many of our listeners know, um, but both of these books are not specific to tennis and yours isn't even necessarily specific to sports. Mine is more on the sports side, um, is, is definitely, on, you know, on the sports side relates to, um, mental toughness and really physical toughness as well. It's called the new toughness training for sports. 
Um, and re he really talks about this, breaks down this concept of mental toughness and also ties in physical toughness as well. Um, and this is something, a, um, a concept that I know we've both talked a lot about. I, I did my master's dissertation on this topic and um, this is a, mental toughness can sort of, sort of be a buzzword at times where, um, you know, what does that really mean? Does that just mean to tough it out? Does that just mean to, uh, you know, to, to stay emotionally tough? What does that really mean? But really this concept of being resilient and being able to handle whatever life throws at you um, while competing on the court, off the court, whatever it may be. Um, so this, I, I really, really love, love this book. Um, and I think it's a great reminder to us all that this, this concept of toughness and I, I within sports, it's, um, as particularly within tennis, it's often referred to as mental toughness is one of the keys to success, but not just because it means, um, you know, sort of being hard at all moments, but it's, it's sort of, to me, more about being flexible, being able to be resilient and being adaptable to whatever, whatever is thrown at you in any, any moment. Maybe that's during a match when you're dealing with somebody who is cheating on their line calls or you think they're cheating, or maybe it's on a windy day or particularly sunny day, or there's fans that are getting in your way or annoying you or whatever it is. But that concept of toughness is being able to withstand whatever is, whatever is happening, whatever is being thrown at you and being resilient enough to take, take that in stride and to still perform at a high level regardless. Any, yeah, any, yeah. Well, yeah I, I, I think we should also look at the title there, Josh, because even though yes. it says new toughness uh, training for, it's not new. It's right. uh, that book is probably, I think the first edition was in the eighties, but that, that the new one might be from the early nineties yep. and it, um, another great readable book similar to Terry Orlick's um, and definitely one highly recommend that one but it just shows like what a pioneer Jim Lair was he was truly ahead of the curve on many of these things I mean he his research on the in-between points routine you know was done in the 80s yep um, you know the DVD or actually at the time it was a VHS tape the 16 second cure was released in 1989 you know that was my senior year in college I could have used it a little bit earlier um, so that's what I like about him. And I actually did, I don't know if you've done his course, his, he has like a mental toughness training certification. It's like a two day, two and a half day course at down in, uh, Lake Nonor where somewhere near Orlando. Um, and, and it's totally worth it. It's really, it's quite good. Um, so yeah, just a sort of a giant of the, of the tennis and, and sports psychology world. Um, so yeah, I love that. Love that book. And I think tennis players, because Lair um, is so into tennis, I think he actually at one point was even like a 5-0 player himself. Um, and they had a bit of a little academy at the Human Performance Institute. There's a lot of tennis, a lot of tennis in his background. So, so I think we have a bonus book, right, Josh? We got... Um, one that we both just happened to read. It's relatively new. I think it's from 2019. Um, 2020, in fact. Is it actually 2020? Okay. Early 2020. Okay. Um, and this is really more for coaches. So the name of the book is Coaching Athletes to Be Their Best, Motivational Interviewing in Sports. Um, 
Stephen Rolnick and Jonathan Fader. There might be one other author. I don't remember. I think so. But those two are are there. Um, And part of the title is motivational interviewing. So, you know, what is motivational interviewing? So this is a way of communicating and it really comes more or originally from the world of psychotherapy. Um, And it's a way of talking to people so that they want to make changes, that they're the ones who talk about making change. Um, And so from a tennis perspective or working with athletes is getting them in a way to um, tell us what they they want to do rather than us directing, right? So we as coaches are often have what the authors refer to as the writing reflex. We automatically want to correct things and direct things um, where instead can we communicate in different ways so that we get the athletes to tell us what they want to do or what they're willing to do. You know, Josh, you might want me to, you know, do all kinds of workouts, but that's, you know, I might not want to, but I might be willing to commit to maybe half of that. Oh, that could be a good start. Right. And if I'm the one that actually says that I'll, I'll do it, I'm more likely to adhere to it rather than you telling me what to do. Um, and so, uh, you know, this book is, um, I think it's well worth coaches, uh, reading and, and figuring out how they can integrate concepts of motivational interviewing goes into it way more deeply than I just did. But, um, uh, I, I think that's a, that's a great book. What, what, what struck, uh, you know, what did you like about this book? Yeah. So it was actually an interesting, um, I can just give a little bit of background. So I actually went to an event, um, in February, um, February of this year, um, at, at Rutgers, Rutgers University, uh, where Jonathan Fader was, was speaking and actually received a copy of the event, or received a copy of the book at that event. Um, and uh, obviously things have, uh, the world has, has changed a little bit since then. Um, and what I would say, what I would say from, from that book, what I really took away is, um, that this concept, I think this sort of ties into um, this concept of overcoaching or trying to talk too much at times. And um, Brian, you you brought up the point about coaches, you know, who, you know, I I, I put myself in that same category. I would say many coaches, maybe, maybe most coaches at times feel like they feel like they have to say everything and, and maybe talk too much at times where, um, best practices at, at times is rather than saying too much, letting the athlete find solutions and, f- and figure things out on their own. And I think what, what this book really helps coaches do is communicate with athletes in a way where rather than trying to help them make change by telling them that this, things have to be done a certain way, um, to instead try to ask questions, trying to, um, you know, find out why they're doing things the way they currently are, trying to help them, you know, make improvements on their own terms, I would say, um, rather than trying to write it and telling them, you know, this is the way things are done. This is our one size fits all approach here. But instead, um, through questions, through having a little bit of a softer approach, I would say, um, helping them to find those solutions on their own. Um, and I, as you said, when, when 
people commit to things on their own um, and it's of their own volition, really their own, own idea to make that change, um, they're much more likely to adhere to it. So um, I, 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 in comparison to many of our other suggestions, certainly a much more recent book. Um, and uh, I, I would say this concept of motivational interviewing fits great into the field of sports, particularly for coaches. Um, all right. Well, that is our show for today. Um, for more on today's show, you can check out the show notes where we'll have some links and some um, our list of the uh, our favorite books. Um, if you have any feedback or questions for us, please send us an email at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag tennisiq as well as check out our Instagram profile, which is Tennis IQ Podcast. Additionally, you can subscribe to our show on your platform of choice, podcast platforms, which include Spotify, Apple, Google, and you can also subscribe on YouTube as well so that you'll be notified of new episodes. Um, thanks again for checking us out, and we will talk to you soon.